Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 33. The issue, the madness in the West Wing and a cultish judge on the hill. Stay tuned. Daily, we must feel we are watching a very public man, Trump, who needs an intervention. Trump careens out of control. While infected, he commandeered a bulletproof town car and the Secret Service and PPE to ride around the hospital waving thanks at passing bystanders and supporters. Trump doesn't care who he hurts. When Trump finally left the hospital, he thought of affecting the image of a fragile patient leaving the hospital and then dramatically turning toward the cameras, opening his shirt to reveal a Superman shirt. Talk about narcissistic inflation out of control. Let's not overlook the delusion of a 74-year-old Superman who can hardly breathe thinking he was somehow super. There must be some meds that he was getting that got some real power behind him. Trump uses words like order in conjunction with law, but pushes back against the order and the protocols that might have saved them from COVID. You know, masks, staying away from hope, perhaps. And he instructs the nation by how he conducts himself, an example that everyone should act that way. And, it, and instead of trying to save thousands of others, he gives them an example that puts them at risk, and they die because they listened to and mimicked Trump. Experts say, if we just wear a mask, all of us, we could save 100,000 of our fellow citizens from death by the end of the year. It is an enigma to understand why Trump didn't just do his job, tell folk what he was told to protect them from COVID, but Trump is incomprehensible when it comes to ordinary human conduct. One can only conclude Trump was indifferent to who would be infected or die and maybe even wanted the spread he prompted because he thought these infections and deaths would mostly adversely affect those who wouldn't vote for him anyhow. We don't know if Putin embraces what his protege puppet is doing. Upon his release from the hospital, Trump still looked sick. He claims he's not. Some thought he should have stayed there longer. But he won't let Fauci or any of the real infectious disease experts speak to his health. And I'm talking about this Sunday, the talking heads all tried to get these people up there for, to find out what was going on. But Trump and his cronies wouldn't allow it to happen. They wouldn't allow any of the medical experts on the president's own coronavirus task force to appear on this show. And, and there have been recent events that make you scratch your head. For example, the FBI uncovered a plot to overthrow the Michigan governor, and the FBI foiled the plot. Trump ends up attacking her, almost as if he thought she had it coming. When vice president candidate Kamala Harris debated vice president Dents, Trump called her a monster. What is he thinking? Plainly, Trump's screaming attacks promoted this plot as if he sat down with them and told them how to liberate their state government. Plainly, Trump could have said the nice thing, as Dents did at the debate, about how wonderful it was that she appeared. He could still have his differences with her. He didn't have to call her a monster. But Trump is running short of funds and low on the polls nationwide in battleground states. He is desperate. 
Trump has his son Eric saying that Biden withdrew from the next scheduled debate, but it was Trump who said he wouldn't appear if he had to abide by the commission rules, you know, like not interrupting and things like that. This is what Eric said on the airwaves this Sunday. The real story should be how Biden backed out of the debate that's supposed to take place in Miami, uh, you know, this Thursday. He didn't want to stand on a stage with my father, and that should tell you everything that, you know, you need to know about him. Literally, my father wants nothing more than to debate well, well, I mean, I mean, Thursday, and, and Biden, Biden, Biden wouldn't show up. I mean, the only thing he would do is he would do a Zoom call, and, and my father, maybe he's a traditional guy, he didn't want to do, he didn't, he didn't want to do a glorified conference call for a presidential debate. But, but, you know, but, but, but to be clear, it was, I'm happy to wear a mask. But, but, but to be clear, it was your father that pulled out of the debate. The debate commission said it would be a virtual debate. It was your father that pulled out of the debate. And this is what Trump said earlier that contradicts what Eric said. I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating's all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. <laughs> These guys can't get their, their, their story straight. Now, Trump in recent days has run to Fox and Cable because he can't afford to do much else. On Fox, he says he's going to disclose his medical conditions, still sick, but he doesn't really. On Lackey Limbo's hate-filled ditto-head show, Trump talks about how he'd F up Iran if they didn't respect his position against them. And this guy carries around the nuclear codes. Keep that in mind. Trump is desperate to find a path to victory, and we have to hope that we don't get in the way of that path. And there are fewer paths that he can realistically take to any presidential victory in November. Trump slanders his prime mouthpiece, Barr, for not indicting Obama and Biden to help his election. Unless Bill Barr indicts these people for crimes, the, the greatest political crime in the history of our country, then uh, we're going to get little satisfaction unless I win and we'll just have to go because I won't forget it. Like the citizens would buy that defense to his own misconduct. Presently, even Barr hasn't thought to do this. Of course, that could change. Pompeo, our Secretary of State, says he'll help Trump. He'll release Hillary Clinton's emails to help Trump's election. She deleted 33,000 emails. She should be in jail for that. I don't even care if they're, certif if they're, if they're uh, very highly confidential emails. I don't care what. So, Danny, you'll remember, I, I was close to this even when I was a member of Congress when I served on the Benghazi Committee now, what seems like uh, a little bit time ago. Uh, we've got the emails. We're getting them out going to get all this information out so the American people can see it. Overlooking two important facts. One, Senate hearing said there's no there there. And two, Hillary's not running for president this year. That was four years ago. This guy Biden is running this time. Have you heard, Donald? Trump can only win, and I say that advisedly, if he cheats. Trump knows that. Trump is that criminal in the B-movie running down a dead-end back alley to escape himself and to put distance between himself and what he did, improvising as he runs away, reaching and pulling down garbage and loose obstacles to throw in the way to obstruct his pursuers, to stop what seems more inevitable daily. We have heard much discussion about when Trump knew he was infected and whether he is still a spreader. And this White House document disappears in a cloud of dust and a hearty high hole silver, leaving so many open questions, including, is he still a spreader? Is he still sick? When did he uh, first discover that he had the infection? In other words, true to form, the public doesn't get a straight answer. So what should we do? Revert to the only rule that makes us safe. Believe it's a lie if Trump or his crime family broadcasts it. We know how this should end with Trump's shameful political demise, but like watching an episode of 24, we worry what might yet save this criminal.
What trick and deceit employing what members of Trump's crime family and so many still indifferent onlookers who could yet save him by some treachery or dirty trick that we haven't anticipated? Perhaps that's the October surprise. Some of his tricks are transparently Bush League, and I don't mean George Bush, like having blessed pay African-Americans to come to D.C. to the White House to sit up front at the White House rally to suggest that they actually support Trump and wouldn't be there otherwise. One of Trump's various lifesavers is going to take center stage on Monday at a Senate hearing on the Hill when she takes an oath to tell the truth. This will be center stage for the next several days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So let's drill down on this constitutional event. Stay tuned. When I say lifesaver, I'm saying we're talking about Judge Barrett, who is a person who has been groomed in a cultish Roman Catholic faith and is believed by the Federalists and Republican senators generally to be the person to push the Supreme Court hard right. She's more extreme than Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, or Alito. She's more extreme than Justice Scalia, whom she clerked for. Trump favors her nomination for at least three significant reasons. First, Judge Barrett will sink the Affordable Care Act. And two, Judge Barrett will find a way to overthrow Roe v. Wade if she's on the court, eviscerate a woman's right of choice and a woman's right to be let alone. And lastly, and this Trump may consider the most important aspect of her elevation to the court. Third, she will be on the court to help Trump prevail when he challenges to the Supreme Court the election that he can't win otherwise. Returning to the present, Judge Barrett will be questioned at the Senate hearing scheduled to begin Monday and to go on for three days. Embattled Lindsey Graham, the committee chair, facing the political challenge of his career, hopes to conduct this hearing with such pizzazz that it will help return him for another Senate term in November. As of this Sunday, Graham is behind by only a couple of points in the polls. The math in the Senate for this hearing is a razor's edge of votes, just two senators to give her confirmation a slim majority. There is also the coronavirus that may hamper the vote on the floor, as the vote must be done in person. At least those are the rules as I speak these words. Moscow Mitch could change what is presently the rule. Senator Cruz and other Republicans are trying to tamp down vigorous questions of the nominee of Judge Barrett, claiming hard and fair questions are in Cruz's mind some sort of circus. The senator thinks the Dems went too far when underscoring Justice Kavanaugh's beer-drinking sexcapades as disqualifying conduct, in addition to some of the positions he took on the law that he would be considering as a Supreme Court justice. So that's what Cruz thinks is a circus. So much for the notion that this is the greatest legislative engine in the history of the world. Cruz worries that we shall have robust debate and a searching inquiry of an extremely conservative ideologue who would join the Supreme Court to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now there's a crime. The comparison between these two, between who cares about individual rights and liberties, and it is not Judge Barrett. Some think that Judge Barrett shouldn't be asked about her faith, but it's a fair question to ask if the judge will supplant the law with her faith, all denials she may utter to the contrary notwithstanding, because we have data points that show that she does care more about her faith than the rule of law. 
The way we figure her sworn testimony is we look at what she's done before tomorrow when she appears before the Senate and how she got to lift her right arm to swear to tell the truth. Let's look at what she said when she was taken somewhat by surprise before the Senate the last time she was considered for the appellate judgeship she now holds. Stay tuned. When Judge Barrett was vetted the last time to be appointed to the Seventh Circuit, and at that time she was a professor, Professor Barrett at Notre Dame uh, School, she was on the Hill. She had to submit certain records, including who may have paid her for any emoluments. Senator Al Franken, a fine lawmaker, sorely missed from the Senate, scrutinized those papers and found information that he thought was quite distressing. Incidentally, Senator Franken showed this talent on other hearings. He's a real loss to the Senate. Judge Barrett was one of the legal minds who gave lectures about the Constitution to interns in the Blackstone Legal Fellowship Program. The program described those leading minds, inclusive of Judge Barrett, as follows, quote, these leading minds engage in formal and informal discussion with interns, exploring pressing cultural issues and challenging prevalent relativistic and positivist legal think thinking while promoting a robust view of universal moral truths. We'll talk about this in a moment. The curriculum also incorporates daily worship and a devotional series focusing on personal and ethical challenges related to the legal practice. Funny, when I was at Fordham, we had discussions about situation ethics. That's apparently what they're talking about. They disapprove of relativistic situation ethics. At Fordham, the Jesuits didn't tell us what to believe. The term universal moral truths means natural law. Scalia said that from time immemorial, and that supersedes all civil law. And that is not written down. That comes full-blown into the mind of Scalia, and by tradition, I guess, Judge Barrett. So what are we dealing with here? How many programs make a part of the program daily worship and a devotional series? But that's what these lawyers, these interns, that's what they're submitting to. The first frequently asked question for Blackstone is, who founded this organization? And the answer is that the Blackstone Legal Fellowship is a program of Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, the world's largest legal organization committed to protecting religious freedom, free speech, and the sanctity of life. So you see the connection. Blackstone is a group that's training young Christians for a public life of a certain type, and it's associated with the Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF. When you visit the ADF, you find out what they're really about. The Southern Poverty Law Center has described the ADF as a terrorist organization. The center says the ADF was founded by some 30 leaders of the Christian right. 
The Alliance Defending Freedom is a legal advocacy and training group that supported the, get this, recriminalization of sexual acts between consenting LGBTQ adults in the U.S. and abroad. It has defended state-sanctioned sterilization of trans people abroad, has contended that LGBTQ people are more likely to engage in pedophilia, and claims that a homosexual agenda will destroy Christianity and society. ADF also works to develop religious liberty legislation and case law that will allow the denial of goods and services, get this, to LGBTQ people on the basis of religion. Since the election of President Trump, ADF has become one of the most influential groups in forming the administration's attack on LGBTQ rights. Armed with this information, back when Professor Barrett was considered to be a nominee for the Seventh Circuit, Senator Franken had this exchange with Professor Barrett. It goes on for a little bit, but I think it's worthwhile to listen to the whole thing. Sir uh, Barrett, uh, on the financial disclosure report, that you submitted to this committee, you listed two payments of $2,100 each from the Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF. Uh, ADF, for those who are not familiar with it, is a uh, far-right group that files cases and lobbies for policies that ADF characterizes as defending religious liberty. But when you actually take a look at uh, at ADF's work, it's clear that the group's real purpose is to advance an extreme version or vision of society. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate groups, describes ADF as a group that has, quote, supported the recriminalization of homosexuality in the United States and criminalization abroad. Criminalization of homosexuality, has defended state-sanctioned sterilization of transgender people abroad, has linked homosexuality to pedophilia, and claims that a homosexual agenda will destroy Christianity and society. In addition to the lawsuits it files, ADF also runs a training program for law students and young attorneys who share its views. Professor Barrett, if my understanding is correct, the payments you received from ADF were connected to presentations you delivered at ADF's training seminars. Is that right? Yes. I gave a one-hour presentation on constitutional law. Mm -hmm. And you delivered these presentations to law students participating in the Blackstone Legal Fellowship Program. Blackstone is an ADF program. Were you aware of that when you accepted their invitation to speak? I, I, I actually wasn't aware until I received the honorarium and saw the ADF on the check, or maybe when I saw an email and saw the signature line. But yes, ADF is the organization that sponsors the Blackstone. You weren't aware of it. When um, I... Senator Franken, I can't remember exactly when I became aware of it. I was aware of the Blackstone program for some time. Well, you were not I, aware when you when the gig. By the uh, time I by the time I spoke, I was aware. I can't remember exactly when I was aware, but are for you, present purposes. Uh, listen, is it your habit of accepting money from organizations without first learning what they do? 
Senator, I'm invited to give a lot of talks um, as a law professor, and it is not, I don't know what all of ADF's policy positions are, and it has never been my practice to investigate all of the policy positions of a group that invites me to speak. So, so if you got, um, you know, let's say in the uh, 70s, I, I did lectures and say Pol Pot had asked me to speak, but I didn't like check it out. Do you think that would have been good judgment? No, Senator, and if I were invited to speak by Pol Pot or by the KKK um, or a group like that, I would certainly decline the invitation. But I think it's a long way um, from... Well, let me just tell you this, that Blackstone's affiliation with ADF is clearly stated on its website. The first question on Blackstone's frequently asked questions page is, who created the Blackstone Legal Fellowship? The answer reads, Blackstone Legal Fellowship is a program of Alliance Defending Freedom... I mean, this is a group that fights against equal treatment of LGBT people. This is a group which calls for the sterilization of transgender people abroad. I was not aware of that. Well, that, that begs my question again. So you will speak to anyone who pays you? Uh, you don't check out who they are? I mean, if they're the uh, lobby for dogs and puppies and uh, American pie, but happen to be, I don't know, anti-Semitic, you wouldn't do any research? Senator, again, if I were invited to speak by a hate group, if I were invited to speak by the KKK well, sounds like or that the ADF group, is something of a hate group, doesn't it? Senator, that was not my um, that was not what my interactions with Blackstone were like. The people who I interacted with, we had a wonderful group of students from Notre Dame go. I never witnessed any discriminatory conduct in any way. I never had a whiff of that. My presentation was about constitutional interpretation. It had nothing to do with those topics, and it just was not my experience. I didn't have... Do you, do you know what the Southern Poverty Law Center is? I learned it recently, yes. You learned it just recently? No, I'm sorry. I thought you were going to ask me if I knew about the Southern Poverty Law Center's classification of ADF as a hate group. And no, yes, I didn't I ask you that. that. What I asked you was a simple question. I do know what the Southern Poverty Law Center is. Okay, what are they? What do they do? Um, well, I'm speaking generally. Um, I'm generally aware that the Southern Poverty Law Center um, fights discrimination and that they do classify some groups as hate groups. Yeah, they track hate groups. And you spoke at an event sponsored by one of those hate groups. Senator. Now, I question your judgment. The root word of judgment is judge. Senator, with respect, I did not have that impression of ADF. And ADF, um, if it were truly a hate group, it wouldn't be co-counsel right now. It has a brief in the Supreme Court with Wilmer Hale, which is one of the most reputable and um, esteemed law firms in the country. And they wouldn't be co-counsel with ADF if it were a hate group. Um, I, I assure you they wouldn't be co-counsel with, with the KKK. I gather that the Southern Poverty Law Center's designation of ADF as a hate group is controversial. I didn't learn about that until more recently. But again, 
That was not my experience with the Blackstone program. Um, I so is, had it, is it your position that no hate group has ever filed or co-filed a, um, a brief to the Supreme Court? I haven't researched that question. That is not my position. My position is that a very well-respected law firm would certainly not serve as co-counsel on a brief with a hate group because, as you say, if there's a hate group, just like I wouldn't give a speech in front of a hate group. I wouldn't give a speech to the KKK. I think that... But uh, you yourself said that you don't take it upon yourself to research who you're speaking to. So how do you know? I mean, not many groups call themselves the KKK. Only one does. But there are plenty of hate groups out there. So if you yourself said you had no idea when you gave this, when you accepted this speech, you didn't do any research into them, you are saying to me that you don't uh, vet who pays you to give a speech. Now that to me is irresponsible and shows bad judgment because I used to, the Pol Pot was a pretty extreme example, but I would vet whoever asked me to speak. Especially, and uh, he, whether I was speaking for free or I was being paid, and it seems to me that this demonstrates extremely bad judgment. Why don't we ask for an answer, Senator, and then we'll move yes, on. Yes, Senator, I, I would like to say it wasn't. Um, I had several colleagues who had given lectures in the Blackstone program, and as I said, we had several groups of law students, students that I found very engaged and that I liked very much who had gone to Blackstone, so I was aware of the program, and I respected both the students and the faculty who I knew had participated in it. So again, I had, it wasn't, I had no reason to think it was a hate group, and that was certainly not my experience of it. Okay, can I ask one last question then that just deserves an answer? Sure. Okay. I'm a little confused. Do you vet groups that you talk to or not? Because when your first question, uh, first response to my question was that you don't. So I want to ask you, was that answer truthful? Perhaps I can, yes, it was truthful, but let me say this. If I received a random invitation from a group that I had never heard of and had no experience of, I would look it up and try to figure out what it was. In this particular context, I had heard of the Blackstone program. That sounds like your first statement wasn't truthful because your first answer was that you don't vet. That I don't look up every policy position that a group invites me, that a group before whom I'm speaking might have because I don't feel like member uh, affiliation with a group commits me to all of that group's policy positions. I will say, Senator, that if I if it was a group that I had no idea who they were, of course I would try to figure out who they were before I accepted an invitation. I had a general sense of the Blackstone program and respect for those who I knew who were participating in it. Thank you. I think the exchange speaks for itself. Let's talk about how Judge Barrett looks at earlier cases and what she means by precedence, that is respecting the holding in an earlier case. Stay tuned. Lawyers consider 
what law has been set before the case that's before the court that you may be involved in? What is the value of a case already decided by the Supreme Court to decide the case you're handling? Well, Judge Barrett, now a judge, has some different views about this. But when she was a professor, she wrote an article in 2013 uh, titled Precedent and Jurisprudential Disagreement. And it's published in the Texas Law Review. And it was while she was still a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Professor Judge Barrett examined the role of the doctrine of what's called stare decisis, which is Latin for to stand by things decided. It's a shorthand for respect for precedent. Professor Barrett foreshadowed her approach to precedent in the article right off the bat. She admits that, quote, overruling precedent is disruptive, but some instability in constitutional law is the inevitable product of pluralism. What is she talking about, pluralism? Professor Barrett said the court, when looking at its own earlier cases, is a shape-shifting document. Professor Barrett had no experience in the trial court, that is, trying any cases. In this article, she said, however, that federal trial courts, quote, do not consider themselves bound to follow their own prior decisions. Well, not from what I've observed as a practitioner in these many courts. In the Supreme Court, she says, Stare decisis, that is precedent, is a soft rule. The court describes it as one of policy rather than as an inexorable command. In this regard, Professor Barrett said that constitutional cases are the easiest to overrule. You see where we're going with this. Think Roe v. Wade. Put it in the back of your mind. She said mistaken constitutional interpretations are difficult for the people to correct. Now, this is a critical flaw in her reasoning when she says for the people to correct because individual rights are often in spite of and contradiction of what the majority, the people may want. There are many examples in which the individual by right stands against the majority. The majority may act through the legislature, but the Supreme Court, the Constitution before the Supreme Court allows a person to stand against the mass, against the majority, to assert his or her individual rights. Now, it's a basic error that Scalia repeats without correction, and she, as his protege, does the same thing. Uh, when there's not a right expressly written in the Constitution, you don't see gay rights in there, do you? You don't even see freedom described in there. That right should be established by legislation. But you see, the flaw is legislation is the majority, and the Constitution exists to protect the individual against the majority in certain cases. Indeed, when the Constitution was written, the first controversy was to add a Bill of Rights, of individual rights, and we have added them since that time in 1787. Professor Barrett says the question is whether it is better for the law to be settled or settled right. She didn't say far right, but she said settled right. Her notion of pluralism, remember that word from a few moments ago? That's the different ways of interpreting the law. It's not about color or religion or those things. It's those who see the Constitution as a living document. What else can you do when at the time of the Constitution, in 1787, women were chattels, uh, slaves had no rights, and if you didn't own property, you weren't much of a citizen. You couldn't vote. And the other uh, school is the Scalia-Barrett notion of originalism, 
What did they originally mean when they wrote that constitution in 1787? Originalism doesn't allow for individual rights if it's not plainly stated as such. And then the default is what the legislature says, but the legislature only represents the majority when a government is truly representative and not the individual whose right is at risk, say equal protection for an LGBTQ person or a pregnant woman, woman and more. At one point, Professor Barrett in this article says, the classic formulation of stare decisis asks a justice to weigh the benefits of error correction against the cost of overruling. In the adjoining footnote, of course, Roe is cited. This was, uh, I think, an effort by her to get attention from the Federalists and to be considered for a judgeship because she picks on that issue and some others, but particularly Roe, to draw attention to herself in this Texas article. Professor Barrett concedes that it is surely true that reversal is more likely to result from a new justice's heretofore unexpressed opinion than from an existing justice's change of mind. Was she foreshadowing here her own ascendance to serve as first a judge in the Seventh Circuit, <clears throat> and now seeking to be an associate justice with her unexpressed opinions still unknown to the general public after the railroad that Graham is running in the Senate? Well, this article is very helpful to put to rest what it is she really believes because she had to express it in some way, and uh, guilt spills itself for fear of being spilt, and that's what she's done in this article. She goes on to say the doctrine of precedent is... Not a hard and fast rule in the court's constitutional cases. And she added that its power is diminished when the case under review is unpopular. Back in the article, she writes this in language meant for the Federalists, in my opinion. She wrote, If anything, the public response to controversial cases like Roe reflects public rejection of the proposition that stare decisis, precedent, can declare a permanent victor in a divisive constitutional struggle rather than desire that precedent remain forever unchanging. That's powerful. That's, that's not even a hint. That's, that's an outright statement. There is a way to overrule Roe, and I'm prepared to do it. Barrett said court watchers embrace the possibility of overruling. Who are these unidentified watchers of the court? There's no footnote identifying them. The Federalists? The Federalists who would promote her judicial career? Professor Barrett said challenges to precedent generally originate with litigants and are a means of pushing back against the proposition that the Constitution embodies the principle the court says it does. For example, that the right to terminate a pregnancy is a fundamental one. She's not holding back at all. And, you know, people are scratching their head on the Hill should read her article. And I presume some will have read the article and you'll hear it mentioned on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. Professor Barrett wrote... Quote, that for some constitutional questions, authoritative settlement is neither possible nor desirable. Now get this, the corresponding footnote down below in tinier type refers to an article titled Roe Rage, not Road Rage, Roe Rage. Professor Barrett said that one Supreme Court decision, and this happens to be another uh, a follow-up on Roe, Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania against Cary, quote, shows that the Supreme Court is quite incapable 
of transforming precedent into super precedent. You see, her thinking is that if Roe is a super precedent, well, then we leave it alone. And there are some cases that, that are super precedents, and she mentions them. But Roe v. Wade is not a super precedent. It's just a precedent. Now, again, in a note, the good professor elaborates on what she really believes. She wrote in a note, Scholars, however, do not put Roe on the super precedent list because the public controversy about Roe has never abated. So she's saying that what the public says, what's happening outside the chambers and outside the rigors of law, that pressure can determine whether something is a precedent or a super precedent. She quoted two views she obviously shares. Uh, Here's one. A decision as fiercely and enduring contested as Roe v. Wade has acquired no immunity from serious judicial reconsideration, even if arguments for overruling it ought not to succeed. She quoted another authority. She said that Roe cannot be considered a super president in part because calls for its demise by national leaders have never retreated. So if senators get up in the Senate and say every day that Roe v. Wade should be reversed, then it can't become a super precedent. It's only a precedent. It's ridiculous. You can see that it's an object-oriented argument, meaning that the means justify the ends. The ends are that we have to say that we're going to overrule Roe, and the question is how do we get that point, and that's what this is about. Now let's look at another exchange Professor uh, Barrett had when she sought to join the appellate court. Uh, that is going back to uh, when she went to, wanted to go on the Seventh Circuit. Stay tuned. During her confirmation hearings for the Seventh Circuit, Judge Barrett repeatedly insisted that a judge should not impose her personal convictions on the law. Now, we know that her personal convictions are imposed upon the law. She also said several times that as an appeals court judge, she would follow Supreme Court precedent on abortion. Yes, she said that, but she also said something else in an article that I guess she assumed because law review articles may not be heavily (laughs) reviewed, even those in the Texas Law Review. Um, Senator Feinstein said to her, you are controversial. Let's start with that. You're controversial. And then there was an exchange that some criticized, and I'm going to play that for you instead of uh, telling you the content. But... uh, It raises the question of her replacing her faith for the law in connection with her theory about when and how and rightly you can overrule precedent. Why is it that um, so many of us on this side have this very uncomfortable feeling that, you know, dogma and law are two different things? And I think whatever a religion is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in, in your case, uh, Professor, when you read your speeches, um, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for for years in this country. Please respond to that notion that a real commitment to religious faith is at odds with 
your impartiality as a judge. Senator, I see no conflict between having a sincerely held faith and duties as a judge. In fact, we have many judges, both state and federal across the country, who have sincerely held religious views and still impartially and honestly discharge their obligations as a judge. And were I confirmed um, as a judge, I would decide cases according to the rule of law beginning to end and in the rare circumstance that might ever arise, I can't imagine one sitting here now, where I felt that I had some um, conscientious objection to the law, I would recuse. I would never impose my own personal convictions upon the law. Stay tuned. Because of what Judge Barrett wrote when a professor, she has some explaining about any testimony that says she accepts Roe as a precedent in this hearing. Uh, she plainly said otherwise in her article. And there are a couple of uh, cases that she's ruled on that suggest that she does, in fact, do what she says she believes one should do. Uh, Justice Scalia wrote that the Constitution has nothing to say about abortion and that states should be allowed to decide the question for themselves. Now, you see, that's his trick again. If the states decide it, that's a majority rule. The individual women who have the right to be let alone are compromised by the fact that Scalia has shifted the decision away from the Constitution that provides the right to a legislature to decide to deny that right. There's no reason to believe Judge Barrett disagrees with this approach, particularly the subject matter of abortion. Judge Barrett has considered three laws restricting abortions from her home state, Indiana. In all three cases, she expressed misgivings about earlier rulings from appeals judges that had struck down the laws. Now, the president, at least for the time being, is very concerned that she be able to participate in the argument on the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. On November 10th, a week after Election Day, the Supreme Court is supposed to hear arguments on the latest challenge, the Affordable Care Act. If Mr. Trump and Senate Republicans have their way, Judge Barrett will be on the bench making up the nine to hear the case. That's wrong. And we know, because she's criticized Roberts, that she has a view on that issue. To sort of finish up so you can compare her thinking to Scalia's, in a 2019 dissent, Judge Barrett said she would have limited the sweep of a federal law forbidding people with felony convictions from owning guns. Now that's interesting, because she went further than her former mentor, the author of the 2008 Majority Opinion, in District of Columbia against Heller, which established an individual right to own guns for self-defense in the home. But, you know, Scalia went on to say nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons. So she's gone. She's eclipsed Scalia. Let's take a look back at these hearings. Uh, I have a couple of observations. One, I disagree with some Democrats. I am a genetic Democrat and tribal, I suppose. I believe a president can nominate while pres president, and the Senate should take up the nomination. The Senate did not take up Obama's nomination, and they had plenty of time to do so. They waited months so Trump could make a nomination. The error was by the Senate in the first case. President Obama's nomination should have been considered. A second point I have, it's unseemly to go forward with a hearing when the election is on and has been on since September, and the incumbent is doing so badly. 
Now, it's not unlawful. It's not unconstitutional. But it is unseemly, and it strikes me as bad government. Having the power doesn't mean that you can abuse it. And I think in this case, politics aside, this is an abuse of a power. Particularly when, well, let's go to a third point. I think it's uh, an abuse to appoint a judge who has so little learning in the law, but is mostly an ambitious faith-directed ideologue who will embarrass herself and the nation should she be confirmed, and uh, participate in writing some really bad law, given what we know is her position before she gets to the bench. Uh, lastly, I think this exercise, this fight, this election year fight about how we put a judge on a court underscores why we should have 60 votes to approve a justice. And, and without regard to who has the majority, it forces the Senate to agree on a nominee who will be the kind of person who can handle the issues in the future that we cannot now foresee because they have that balance, that discipline, they're studied, and they believe in a law that has a less uh, unfocused view of precedent. Because, let's face it, if the precedent is not firm enough, then the trust of the court, watching it swing one way and another, has to suffer. I'm therefore hopeful that Judge Barrett will fail because of what unfolds at the hearing or because of the virus. I don't expect a single additional Republican to do the right thing, though two have said they will not vote to confirm Judge Barrett, and they've given good reasons for it. And it may be affected by the election that at least one of them has, uh, Senator Collins in Maine, who is behind, by the way. I presume that when uh, Vice President Biden is elected, he will find a way to balance the court. Time takes care of some of these things, as indeed FDR found uh, when he tried to pack it and then backed off that. I think some of the predictions of how the chief, that is Justice Roberts, will conduct the court may be right, but they're speculative. And he's a complicated man, and he's been on the court, and he cares for it as an institution. We'll find out if he cares more about being remembered for maintaining it as a an institution that has the trust of the people, or making it a political body. As for Trump, for now and forevermore, we cannot rely on anything he says, so don't. Vote if you haven't. Get someone else to vote. Uh, contribute if you can. Even 5 or $10 makes a difference. And we'll have another podcast next Sunday. Subscribe if you haven't. All the best. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>